0: Poppas Pilar is a spirit that embodies adventure. Named after the late great Ernest Hemingway and his boat, the Pilar, the name says it all. This ultra-premium blended rum is hand-selected from around the Caribbean and blended by master blender Ron Call. After a long day on the water when the sun is descending the sky, end on a good note with Pilar by your side. Go support them at PapasPilar.com or a liquor store near you. Whether on the boat, on the river, or in the woods, Yeti products are by our side. There are many innovative, first-class companies in the outdoor market today, but none more so than Yeti. In 2006, they took the industry by storm when they produced their first roto-molded cooler that was reliable and built for the wild. Seventeen years later, with a multitude of new products, they continue to raise the bar and be the gold standard for all outdoor brands. We couldn't be more proud to have them as a Millhouse sponsor and a family member. George Solly knows boat design as well as anyone and has found his innovative skills as a founding partner with Chittam Yachts. More specifically, at this stage of the company, they produce a shallow water skiff that changed everything in the world of flat fishing. But to get there, he first experienced an incredible life on the open seas chasing marlin with one of the greatest offshore fly fishermen of all time, Harry Gray.
1: We broke everything, we broke lines, we broke hooks, we broke rods, we broke our minds, we broke marriages, we broke the whole thing.
0: We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow and he turned around the other way and I shot him going through the other way so I double lunged him both ways.
2: But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut
1: got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson.
2: I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet.
1: And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am.
0: Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out. Thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly. Wow, what a ride!
2: <laughs>
0: There's something fishy going on here. What a game! That's that's so cool that you play offshore, and we'll get into that a little bit. Uh But I'd like to start out with you know your background. I know that we were you were talking uh, the last couple of days you know, before this podcast, um, I didn't know that you grew up in the keys. Yeah. What did you, were you born down there or how did your family get there?
2: I was born at Fort Lauderdale. Um, but, uh, my family, uh, my dad's side of the family moved to Florida, came over from, uh, England in 1927 and, uh, gravitated to Florida. Um, apparently the story was my, uh, great-grandfather was in world war one in the machine gun Corps, and uh he had met some americans in the trenches and they talked about the everglades and the keys and mm. florida in general so uh so after the war 27 they took a ship into into ellis island and and uh, they were brick masons my great-grandfather and grandfather came together with uh my great-grandmother wow and uh they made their way to Florida in the 30s. <clears throat> and uh, uh, just a fishing and hunt and uh, lived uh, off Sunrise Boulevard when it was a dirt road. And, uh, you know, went to the Keys one weekend and another weekend to the Everglades. So, uh, and my father was born in Lauderdale and uh, uh, kept doing the same thing. They uh, uh, built most of the brick. Were involved in a lot of the brick homes and buildings in uh in Lauderdale. Um we used to uh do work for uh Gill homes, which you may have you may have run into Ben Gill. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so.
0: I didn't know his family was a cons- in the construction business uh, yeah, building they, so. Yeah, his his father. Yeah, uh, yeah. before, you know, finally kinda of retiring with the hotel, the old Yankee Clipper. But uh and Ben was one of my
2: clients there for a little while. So
0: which and then why did your, your parents move to the Keys? They just well,
2: wanted to be my, around Well, my more, dad more wor- worked on uh, commercial boats. Oh, okay. And uh, he, he worked on a wide array of different boats, uh, uh, you know, growing up. Uh, the My first experience was uh, w- when he was running a, a boat out of Merritt Boatyard for uh, Triple M Seafood, for the the Mott Brothers. And uh, it was a long-line boat. And uh, I would go out on weekends with them. and How old uh, were you at this time? Oh, uh, so this was in the 70s, and so I was in you know, my early teens. Right. And uh, they put out 10 uh, miles of gear, and, uh, you know, I'd help bait some hooks and untangle a lot of stuff. And we, my brother and I would get to catch a bunch of dolphin uh, coming and going and caught our first sailfish doing
1: that. So it was long so. lining, You would set out 10 miles and just let it sit.
2: Yeah, you put it out just before dark, and then pull it the next day, and there'd be all kinds of sharks and swordfish and Crazy marlin, stuff. And, and yeah, I mean that the ocean was teeming with life at that right. time. I mean, uh, no comparison now. So uh, then from there, uh, my dad uh, uh, bought his own uh, commercial boat for snapper fishing, and uh, so. Uh, still, you know, in my early teens, uh, started uh, uh, going with him snapper fishing. Oh, and, so uh, cool. So uh, he was based out of City Fish and Marathon and, uh, and lived there and other places around, uh, you know, middle of Marathon. And, and uh, so, um, you know, having my fishing background, uh, you know, learning it from my dad um you know when he'd go off he'd go off sometimes for 10-15 days so uh i had my my fishing rods and my bicycle and hmm. uh, that's how i grew and, up too
1: chasing so, fish on my bike and a fishing yeah, rods. So, were you the cleaner did you have to clean all those snappers did, after
2: uh we gutted them yeah. yeah did a lot of gutting and packing uh you know in the did you the like box. that uh you know i didn't know any better yeah, to, know, it was did. just yeah it was just part of life and uh-huh. you just did it and uh you know i i, I wouldn't want to do it now <laughs> <laughs> well i remember you were so, saying that
0: but i can uh, clean a fish pretty good yeah. i've cleaned hundreds sure of uh, thousands <laughs> of them so you know. i remember you were saying that you guys used to go to stouts and see all the the, yeah. the, the flats guys uh, in there and i remember my first years down there with um harry spear i met steve huff in that restaurant mm-hmm. and 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 uh dale and dale perez and and um and dale brown you know all those great guys that were down there it seems like they all had breakfast and they fished out of stouts yeah they didn't fish out of a marina and, and a marina was the second stop but so, they all started at stouts
2: so for me uh, being able to ride my bike there in the morning being able to uh peek in their boats and see all their gear was uh pretty fascinating i just had a beat up fishing you know rod with a, a mitchell garcia reel that you know bought from a flea market you know so um you know had jigs and a bag of shrimp but i could see what direction these guys would go see their boats and then ride all around town and get to people's backyards or behind the high school and you could see the guys out there so um, you know, he's figured, well, I'm just going to have to wait out there and, uh, you know, did a lot of waiting and to, you know, start learning how to catch bonefish.
1: Are you, uh, were you way. waiting out behind the uh, marathon school there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that was a good flight. Different
2: areas. I mean, even up in Grassy Key yeah. behind Jojo's, uh, there was all kinds of places. And when I lived on, uh, uh, Grassy Key off Morton street. Uh, I would, uh, take a ladder. And just go put it in the water, and uh, climb on top, and s- stand <laughs> on the ladder, and and just wait, and you know, learn the tides. Eventually, start figuring out when fish are coming through, and they have their patterns, and and uh, take advantage of it.
1: Were you pretty successful?
2: Yeah, yeah, it was a lot easier then. Was it? So, uh, how, how
0: many probably, fish? How many fish a day would would you see uh, during those years? Oh, uh, you, you could easily see a dozen fish or more.
2: And some smaller, you know, bunches of schools and and uh, but I was always tra- trying to find the, the big fat tailors, and of course, you know, they they would get up along a lot of these beaches, so it was uh, actually sometimes easier to, to be on land than it was later as I guided right. from the boats. So on, on a high tide, so, you can yeah. catch them nearby. And then you know, my struggle was having clients that were good enough to cast, and uh, you know, I got a lot of people out of the of the resort uh, other Hawks K then where I first started guiding out of and uh, eventually I just figured out where to stake out and do a little bit of chumming and have the guy standing on the bow with his rod whether it was a fly rod or spinning rod and and uh, throw a couple rods off into the into the you know baits into the channel and and uh you know some of them would say oh I want to sight cast it I want to I was like, all right but after a while, you know, when you're telling 12 o'clock and the, the bait lands at 3 o'clock, you know, and the <laughs> fish is gone, uh, the rod would bend over on a covering board. And I'm like, okay, go pick it up. And they get it and pull out their old, you know, the old style cameras and take a couple shots because they're hero
0: shot and they were just as happy. Did you so, gravitate to tarpon at all when you were younger guiding?
2: I, I, did, a, I did a lot of tarpon for myself personally and friends uh, around the bridges and channels. Um, you know, it was, uh, I called it back then the, the poor man's Marlin. You know, you could go out there, catch some mullet and, and uh, you know, get a couple jumps out of them. And I didn't like to try to beat them. Just, just get the bite, get a few jumps, get them through the piling, you know, get them past the power line poles and uh, get up on them and, break them off i did a lot of real uh small hooks back then which was uncommon i was using uh the 9174 the brown uh uh there was a name they call that but it's a brown hook and we use them for sail fishing quite a bit so what i do is uh i I was out of kind of uh somewhat laziness but had a lot of confidence in this four oh uh Ninety-one seventy-four at the time eventually they made a beaked one and that so kind of switched over to that but but uh you know you got your your uh, uh sailfish rods are already set up with the uh, 40 and 50 pound leader and so it was easy just to grab those rods off at the end of the day throw them on the skiff uh that you know i'd have right next to the boat and throw the bait in there and go out there and and when at that time uh, everyone was using for the most part, hundred and thirty pound leaders and like seven o hooks, and then you know, uh, was
0: that a pretty hard fish to catch with that big of a? Big yeah, of a I, I think
2: I think uh, there, it was a little. I think I was a little bit controversial in with the guys that were I fished because um, sometimes I would do a drop back uh, versus a lot of them were just doing off the tip, drop the tip to it, strike it so um so you
1: know, drop back means open the bail They and could look, get it yeah. a little further down right. so you, but,
2: you, you want know, to get them gut hooked not necessarily gut hooked but definitely you know a little bit further and your hookup ratios were a little bit better but i didn't the difference between what i did was i really liked to you know i'd have my engine set up and, and a quick pull on the anchor and i'd fire that thing up and chase the, it man. and i'd spin that boat around and take off after him because I was into numbers. I wanted to catch, you know, one my best uh, night uh, with uh, uh, ex-girlfriend. We were prepping for the ladies' tournament. We got 16 uh, fish in one night. So Caught. So, yeah, to the leader. Just running up on them, grabbing them. So.
0: What was the fishing like back then? I can only imagine that it was probably pretty well, prolific.
2: The, well, you know, I went back uh, with a friend. Um, Dave Farrell, a few years back, uh, Rick Murphy lent him his, his Maverick, and and uh, he, he got a little place on the water to stay at, on long key, and he knew that I was from there, so he's like, hey, come on, help me catch some tarpon with my kids, and and uh, it was harder to catch bait, and uh, and then when you're at the bridge, I mean, some goofball and a surfers were you know flying by you, and Huh. And boats just running everywhere, and jet skis, and yeah. jet skis, and it just, it just,
0: I mean, it was kind of overwhelming. I can't even imagine what South Florida was like back then when sun, when uh, Sunrise Boulevard had a dirt road. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, that's well, that's as like... I was growing up, State Road 84 was a, a two lane road, and uh, from uh, uh, 441 all the way out to uh, Andytown uh what was uh what was that 27 maybe uh was orange groves and so when we go out to hunt out there uh you would we would come back home like sunday night and just fill up our brown paper bag you know g- g- uh, grocery bags full of oranges and you know obviously we were stealing them but uh, there was so many i yeah. don't think anybody would I got to miss 10 oranges no, <laughs> nobody yeah. seemed to care but yeah. uh fit, uh bass fishing was was really good uh we we spent a lot of time crappie fishing at night camping out and
0: cool and uh, what a great childhood
2: know. yeah it was fun
0: did you have any mentors when you were younger other than your father introducing you to that whole world down there like any uh any big names in the in the backcountry fishing um scene like steve yeah. huff and harry spear no, i never really guys. had any interaction. But you knew I, you know, them I knew, all. You knew, you knew, I knew them who all. they were, right?
2: And uh, I, um, you know, went to school, you know, there with with Dustin and Chad, and, and uh, you know, rode the same school bus for a number of years. So, um, you know, I knew I was friends with with Dustin, right? When we were teenagers. That's crazy. But, oh, I
0: didn't know now, that. Because now you're working with each with each other yeah. at, at Chidham.
2: Yeah. You know? Well, part of that was because. Of our relationship when we were younger, you know, he he wanted that uh, eighty mile an hour skiff, and and uh, and I, you know, knowing that that could be a potential disaster if if somebody doesn't know how to handle themselves.
0: So he was the perfect guy to test all that, and so I had a lot of faith in him. Yeah, sure.
2: Knowing that uh, you know, we ran a lot of boats growing up. A lot of friends. We was he fighting when you knew him? Kneeboarding. No, he, he wasn't He's in his in fighting stage. We were, <laughs> at that time, we were. Uh, Did he always have a temper? No, I, I, you know, at that time when we were hanging out, you know, I was working on the charter boat at Hawks K and his best friend uh, was my washdown kid. And, uh, and so, you know, he'd come to the boat as soon as he got off the bus and Dustin would be hanging out with him. And what, and, what was uh, his name? Uh, his name was Nate Grill.
0: Yeah, he died. He, yeah, he died. Yeah. Uh, they were coming back from uh, I think a New Year's Eve party in Fort Lauderdale to the Keys, and he was in the back seat, if I if I'm correct, and the driver fell asleep, and and they died in the, the yeah, car accident. Yeah, it was real sad. They I mean, were best friends. Yeah, Nate. If you thought
2: Dustin had a temper and got wild, uh, Nate was three notches above. I mean, that where do you was fit in open. with?
0: A, where do you fit in with that uh,
2: well, <laughs> caliber? Uh, I, uh, you know, I had my run-ins and different kids, and and uh, you know, fortunately, was able to, uh, to hold survive. my own. Yeah. And
0: uh, was that was but th- that era in the keys? Was that just sort of like what you did? Yeah, or was it, it was it... a
2: different time. Uh, you know, the uh, you know hanging, I hung around the docks a lot uh, because I was uh, you know wanted to make my five bucks off washing each boat and that was, some, that was, yeah, that's what I made, man. Bucks. And I, I felt like I was a millionaire, man. I would wash <laughs> three boats a day uh, after school. And then I could, you know, make twenty bucks going uh out on a charter on the weekends. Right. When and, did you
0: make that switch from wanting to be a backcountry guy to wanting well, to go offshore? a so, um
2: it uh I that was my hobby you know let's just say i mean i was re- really focused the 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 offshore was my job you know it's where i was making money when i started mm-hmm. but uh there was always you know i was always out in the skiff fishing somewhere uh whether it was catching snappers and you know we didn't have uh you know the the kind of year-long season that it seems like keys has now you know usually and uh end of august you you know somewhere in august september october there were the, the keys would be a ghost town right and uh you know when i first started you know uh jumped on the charter boat when i was 16 i uh wasn't prepared for the uh you know i started in the middle of this, uh, the, or the height of the season and uh next thing you know you know i uh, i got all this cash and and uh living large and and money's coming in and all of a sudden end of the uh, summer. stopped Dried up. So uh I had to go back to commercial fishing.
0: Did you dump your girlfriend and, because you couldn't afford her at that yeah, point? I think <laughs> she she dumped me for fooling around. <laughs> <laughs> and so
2: we never made that tournament. So uh unfortunately. But uh but uh, yeah, I had to uh you know, I had to do other things than uh than fish, so well, it's,
0: it's interesting that you mentioned that, and for the viewers that are listening, a lot of the big tournaments came to be because they wanted to get their clients that they were fishing in the in the prime season of May to come back in June and July so they can make some money mm. and, bring yeah. the, and, and bring some money into the economy. So that's why the Gold Cup and the Holly and all these tournaments got started mm. like 60 some years ago, to get the people back because of the issue you just said, it was just- a ghost town.
2: Yeah, yeah. I had to uh unfortunately go back to work with my dad a couple of times. Unfortunately and, uh, we yeah. did you butt well, heads? Yeah, because he, he uh uh when you worked uh on the boat, you know we did a lot of anchoring. There was a lot of anchor pulling. And uh, you know, there was times where we could drag it, we could pop it and drag it and never have to pull it up. But uh I had uh I the last time. I said, I'll go with you, but I'm not pulling any of anchor. anchors. <laughs> so, so, uh he hired another guy to pull the anchor, and and I did a couple more trips with him. But I had to, uh, I repaired traps, uh, you know, for a while mm-hmm. and uh, getting them ready for the season and crab and lobster traps. And that was no fun. They're full of snakes and scorpions and everything, rats and pretty nasty work. So, did that uh, and then realized I needed to. I needed a boat. I got to catch some fish, and and uh, so with my skiff, uh, you know, I finally got. I was able to uh, you know, go catch snappers. You didn't need a license at that time. You just roll up to the fish house, and I had an account there, and drop them off, and they give you cash. So, so I had that, and then uh, started taking people tarpon fishing on the bridges and, at night, and uh, and then course got my license and i was allowed to do it legally i got uh how many years
0: were you uh breaking the law
2: i i got caught when before i was 18 uh for running trips but they were mostly local people
0: when did you
1: start and running
2: trips i i started when i was 16 yeah so did
1: yeah. you foresee yourself being a full-time flats guide for the rest of your life or was uh it- you know what
2: i did when i first started you know i when I fished with my dad, and you know, I thought it was funny. My dad, he didn't want, you know, he thought the whole sport fishing thing was not the, a good direction to go. That I should, you know, stay commercial fishing and
1: because of money or why? Uh, money, or
2: maybe he thought I'd take on the the, the couple boats that he had and and, uh, Help and keep out. doing. My brother didn't really like fishing at all, so uh, although you know, I I really loved all. Type of had interest in all of it but uh i i was saving money to buy a there was halls bait and tackle it's at the end of the island and i used to hang out in there a lot and check out all the tackle and talk to the guys and there's always camaraderie and sure. tackle shops and and they had a uh, a combination rod for bonefish hanging on the wall And my mission in life was to get that rod <laughs> so uh we had our own box on the commercial boat. So we'd go to Fort Jefferson and fish there in the winter. And in the summer months, we would go to Quesal. Uh, uh, we'd fish Fort K-Sow.
0: Jefferson. That's uh, Tortugas. Yeah.
2: Right. Yeah. So, so on a Tortuga trip, I loaded up a box pretty good and I caught a 100 pound uh, uh, black grouper uh, by myself on hand line. Of course, I didn't get the last 15 feet uh i'd been fighting it for about an hour and then my dad's crewman came over and saw it and and knocked me out of the way and and uh got it yelled at my dad and my dad grabbed the gaff and they gaffed it but i I did the the heavy lifting for the most part but so i had a pretty good cache of uh, fish that that uh i was you know uh delivering to the fish house and uh my dad said oh you made a lot of money and uh I had this handful of cash. I don't remember how much it was, but he said, uh, what are you gonna you gonna get a, a new bike or uh some skates? We were in the roller skating back then and, and skateboarding and then I said, now I'm gonna go buy that spinning rod for that for bone fishing. He said he said, What? You're gonna go buy an idiot stick and fish like the tourists? <laughs> fish like the tourists. <laughs> I said, Yep, yeah, that's what I'm gonna do. So Uh, and so then I had my rod and then I checked out all the stouts guys and, and, uh, uh, you know, working, uh, my dad bought a commercial boat, at key colony beach Marina. Um, it was a headboat out of uh, key West. It was called the Tiki. And, uh, some people called it the leaky Tiki. It was an old 1940s, uh, Navy personnel carrier. And, uh, Somehow it ended up in Marathon for sale. Uh, a bank had it. the The slip was paid for for the summer, so I got to hang out uh, the summer, the whole summer it was somewhere in the early '80s uh, on the dock, and and uh, I was the five dollar kid. Man, I'd wash your car for five bucks. I'd jump in the water, get your keys or glasses for five bucks. Uh, cut the rope off your wheels, wash your boat. It didn't matter, and uh, so I just started banking and hanging out then once i got to know everybody which was uh, you know you say about mentor so you know you see all these captains and crews and what they're doing fishing every day and there was there was really so many of them that um you know that i that i learned from mm-hmm. uh you know my dad gave me a, a really good start but uh um you know the commercial world's a little bit different than the sporty world
0: you know um so many people got the their foot in the door through mating, working on the docks. Harry Spear was an offshore mate mm-hmm. for a while before he became a backcountry guide. Uh, Dingo, uh, he was a young kid. His dad was a fisherman. Uh, we spoke to him yesterday. Then he, he jumped, started getting on these big boats and ended up fishing all around the world mm-hmm. and doing what he did. And he always wanted to be a fisherman. But it's hard to find the money so the 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 ground roots of making money i think um a lot of times is go to a marina where like you what you did you mm-hmm. wash and, boats uh, you people clean ask pitch. me all the time
2: how do i how do i be a captain like you i said go to a dock and uh you know tell people you're ready to work yeah. go bust your ass go to the start
1: ground at the bottom go to the bottom. and if so, you're out yeah. passionate and you want to catch a marlin and travel the world and you can't afford a 80 foot biking that's that's the way that you interact with these creatures that's how you get on that boat um
0: how long were you a skiff guide backcountry skiff guide before you got uh to the offshore boats and how did you make that transition
2: so so I was uh, I was mostly in the offshore boats and the skiff like I said the skiff thing was more of my hobby. hobby and by way of being at Hawks K and having this this connection to to clients, uh, you know that were coming out of the hotel, uh, there was there was um, Matt Pribble was a the guide there, um, uh, his father uh, John Pribble, and uh, talking about mentors, he would take me out to for scouting, and if I wasn't on the offshore boat, so I, he, he was my first um guy to help me learn how to get into the everglades shows you know we didn't have gps's back then you you had to use a compass you had to know how fast your boat was going and uh and basically a watch if you're running and you didn't find that stick or that channel uh in 15 or 20 or 30 minutes you're going the wrong way you're lost so yeah. you know how
0: you get reconnected so
2: um so with him of course never got lost you know uh I later started, you know, out on my own and going with friends and and did get lost, but you know, learned how to get back on. Learned a lot of land ranges. Mm-hmm. You know, that that was very important. Uh I had a uh uh the girlfriend that I was living with, her her uh her mother's uh boyfriend. Uh, he's drawing a blank on his name. I'll probably remember it shortly. Uh but uh he was uh, in the Marine Patrol. He was one of the head guys in the Marine Patrol. So, uh, you know, with tarpon fishing, you're, you're running at night a lot. So you have to learn the lights and the light ranges, and you're literally using street posts and signs and, uh, you know, all kinds of other things. So, uh, you know, uh, that uh, w- was a great experience to, to have guys like that that would show you around. Uh, I think my first time I ever picked up a fly rod was uh, one of Matt Pribble's fly rods, and uh, he was uh, waiting for a charter and was slinging it around, and and uh, we were waiting for our charter to go offshore, and I ran over and I'm like, hey man, let me try that, and uh, so I got and started slinging it, and he's he ripped it out of my hands. He was like, you're gonna mess mess my my fly line up. Give get, get it back, you know so. <laughs> Because clearly I didn't know what I was doing, but uh, but you were intrigued. Yeah, I thought it was pretty interesting. Kind of, kind of made fun of the fly fishing guys. You know, the, I think uh, they're easy to make fun. of. Yeah, with. yeah. They're, that, <laughs> back then because there weren't a lot of them, and they were usually pretty, pretty uh, egotistical. You know, I think they thought. Oh, really? They were all next wow. level and uh,
1: like like above, which, like they're above. Yeah, above. because yeah. it's harder. Yeah, it's yeah. Harder. And I, I
2: didn't fully understand. You know the technique that was necessary and and i was a fish killing machine and uh you know in the conventional world i mean mm-hmm. we would throw hundreds if not thousands of pounds of fish on the dock every every week uh from you know uh, blue marlin mako sharks tiger sharks bull sharks dolphin i mean i caught so many dolphin i think by my third summer i was having nightmares of just cleaning (laughs) dolphins just i mean you know you have six customers back there and you're 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 baiting hooks it's hot as hell you know uh you know you're sweating you're getting sunburned and you have six tourists with spinning rods pulling them in and you're just taking them off throwing them box might have to tie another hook uh throw on a bait which i you know that it it was similar to my commercial fishing experience so so i didn't really have any problem doing it but after a while it just started kind of getting burnt out did that inspire you to make the 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 switch to fly at all no so so what had happened my my fly experience really started when uh there was a guy that came to town that nobody knew had a dark blue skiff and was tarpon fishing under the bridge in the evening and you'd see him around different flats and you can tell you know he was uh following myself and a few of the other guys that knew the area and then there was some was, people he, that he thought he was, he, he, was, he was poaching yeah pretty much you know i mean he 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 kind of knew how to you know he knew the drill and he just figured out who was fishing where and would come in there behind you and then he'd be in there in front of you you know what's his first name day. So that time we (laughs) didn't know who who, who this guy was. He's going to be exposed. (laughs) uh, So, uh, there was talk that, you know, half the town thought he was a a drug smuggler and, and dealer. And the other half thought he was DEA. And there was all this talk about this new dude in town. And, uh, I, I came running into, you know, I'd work the offshore boat all day and then try to get a trip at night. And, uh, um, to make more money. The mullet were 25 bucks a dozen and they'd give you 50 bucks. You get your 225, I think for the trip and 50 bucks for your bait. And, uh, so if I could catch that bait, it was like a, an instant tip. So I'd get Nate clean in the boat and, uh, and I'd jump in the skiff and my nets and, and, uh, go hit the mullet spots. And, and I'd seen this, this guy in the blue boat creeping around and and I come pulling into a spot and I could tell somebody had already been throwing a net in there. It was all dusted up. And I thought it was one of the other fishing guys. And then I come around the corner and there's the blue boat with this guy and his girlfriend in it. And we had some words. And know you know, I, I literally told them, I'm like, hey man, why don't you buy your mullet like all the other rich guys and quit <laughs> screwing up my my spots. I said, you know, I know, you didn't know these mullet were in here until you drove by me the other day. And so, so he uh he said, Hey man, you ever smoke any tie stick? And I had heard about it in high school, but I didn't even know I thought it was like a, a myth. And uh I'm like, no. He's like, why don't we join up together? We'll we'll smoke this tie stick. And then I'll drive the boat. And you throw the net or vice versa and we'll we'll team up because it is a lot easier with two people so I agreed and uh and he uh uh we ended up fishing together quite a bit after that caught a lot of a lot of mullet and uh I'd take my trip and and uh you know if I was done with my trip and was going back I'd give him my bait or he to do vice versa so we, we teamed up and so obviously got to know him pretty obviously good.
0: you like the tie stick
2: yeah 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 it, it's, yeah it was it was some pretty strong stuff we didn't have stuff like that the keys so tie at stick. the time so uh later i found out that he he had smuggled that stuff uh into the united states with sailboats but uh but and we'll get to that story yeah a little so bit. he uh he had uh uh, asked me to uh to uh tarpon fish with him uh well as he was practicing for uh the Gold cup in the in the holly tournament he he used uh uh guides uh, Marco jolis and George wood and uh so I was i was the I was the filling guide to um you know for the practice days so um which i you know I was happy for because i i wanted to to learn it and he was learning it from a couple of good guys. So, so we would go to the spot they call the bowling alley now and, and, uh, anchor up there and wait for Tarpon to come. And, and, uh, you know, the, the flies were a lot different then and the tackle. And, and, uh, but we managed to, to catch him. And, uh, and, and, and then, uh, he was, uh, he was getting into the offshore fishing at the same time. And, uh, he uh he had a camera guy that went around uh was a a skier don mckenna
0: oh yes
2: from aspen i know him very well so don was he he rode uh around with him all the time and videoed everything and uh for several years we're connecting
0: some dots here so from aspen days mm -hmm. and don and going to marathon he lived in marathon yeah
2: he was living with harry actually and that, and making all these videos at harry's house so, yes so the original uh builder and owner of uh, Indies inn was a uh, herb cameron and he rented a house harry rented a house on the water uh, on the ocean side uh from herb cameron really nice place with a pool behind it a lot of big parties were, were, were done there and uh so uh so seeing the tarpon caught on fly that, you know, that was my first real experience and, uh, uh, was impressed with it. Uh, th- the time didn't have enough money to buy my own fly rod. So, uh, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't going to happen for me at that time. Uh, but the sport fish boat that I worked on would go to Mexico, uh, Cancun Isla Harris every year for the spring. And that, that was a, a real, uh, you know, a real treat. A lot more sailfish there, and and uh, so Harry had uh, uh, gone maybe one or two seasons uh, before uh, I had met him, and uh, but he had a uh, uh, an issue with the owner of the boat's wife and wasn't allowed to to uh, to charter the boat the next season. An issue so. with the boat owner's wife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh yeah i don't want to get anybody mad <laughs> yeah they know who they are <laughs> and uh uh so i had uh uh he had asked me he said hey you're you're going to mexico going to islam Harris or cancun and i said yeah we're we're going he said no oh, i'd love to do 15 days of fly fishing and i had watched all these videos that don had taken of harry and Mexico and Costa Rica and St. Thomas. And, and uh, I mean, he, uh, I, I mean, I could watch him for hours and, uh, they were really well done cool,
0: cool rock let, and roll let, music. Let me interrupt you here for a second, because before I'd ever seen a saltwater fish, Don McKinnon used to be a big film guy. I think he used to, he lived in Aspen, uh, up near above, um, West. And I used to go to his house. And he knew a lot of people that I knew. Aspen was very small, it still is, but back then it was extremely small. And I used to go to his house. We we would be partying or whatever, but We were, and he'd say, man, you gotta see these videos. And he was showing me the, these videos of guys catching tarpon on fly rods mm-hmm. and billfish stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm going, my God, wh- where is this? Mm-hmm. And he was a buddy of mine from Aspen. And here we are so many years later, this whole story is coming mm-hmm. to fruition. He was with Harry uh, Harry Gray, yeah. the great Harry Gray, and the whole tie-stick stuff. So that's where all the dots are coming together for me. When I first saw this stuff, I was like, that's incredible.
2: So I went to the owner of the boat. It was called the Huntress. We were at Hawks Cay, and I and, uh, would fish the summers in Ocean City, Maryland. And uh, and uh, there was there was a fleet of three boats, and I would jump from one boat to the other and uh so uh after harry asked if he could get the 15 days i went to the boss and said hey i've got a guy who wants to fly fish and of course everybody thought that was ridiculous for for bill fishing at the time at least all my guys did and uh that i was working with and they brushed it off and uh unfortunately uh we had uh some cancellations and uh the owner of the boat said hey What's going on with that fly fishing guy? And I said no he, he, he wants to do it and he said uh, uh, he needs to pay up front, and uh, uh, or we won't be able to swing going to Mexico this year. So I went over to his house and, and uh, he, uh, he, it was a thousand bucks a day and uh, he put 15,000 in, bucks in a grocery you know brown bag. And I drove up uh, to to the boss's house and drove into his garage and like a drug sh- deal. Shut the door, yeah, because he <laughs> he kept saying, "I think that guy's a drug smuggler or something." He's I keep seeing him on the payphone at the marina, and, <laughs> and uh, so so I I ride in the in his he and Fred Rife is uh, the boss. He he had everything was I called it pink, but he called it coral so <laughs> he'd get pissed when he said it was, everything was pink and uh so i wrote on his pink uh indoor outdoor carpet in the garage and and he was all upset i'm like shut the door shut the door and he, so he hit the button he closed the door he had a desk we had rods and everything and it was a, a almost a tackle shop. and uh he's like what, what what's going on and i dumped the whole bag on his desk of all the cash and he was like i knew he was a drug dealer <laughs> <laughs> so That's pretty funny so we he, harry flew in with his entourage and, he, and who did that include so it was don there was a mckinnon yeah there was a long-haired hippie dude that apparently was in a jimmy buffett band i don't remember his name but harry had spent some time with jimmy buffett in in the caribbean years earlier Um, uh, there was a guy named deep cosman who was a captain out of isla Marana. and uh and then there was Harry's wife and then Dietmar's wife or and I'm not even sure Harry was married to to Cindy, but so this group comes on the boat and uh Dietmar tells me what he wants rigged for teasers and and uh and 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 told me that uh that uh teasing Bill Fish is an art and uh do not touch the rods. You you will not you you will just screw it up you you have no idea what you're doing like okay we were very used to having anglers that we weren't allowed to touch rods you know igfa type anglers tournament guys so so it was you know you had your charter boat people that you had to get on get get to the rods and get the fish hooked up then you had the other ones so we were very cool with not touching people's equipment so so prepped everything put it put stuff out and uh, they commenced to, the, uh, partying every night and, uh, you know, we, we weren't raising a lot of fish and the fish we were raising weren't really responding real well. And, uh, so all I was doing was clearing lines and, and, uh, and, and bringing new baits and, and, you know, passing drinks out and, you know, the normal boat stuff and, and, uh, after about the third day, Dietmar was a little too partied out and he fell asleep in the doorway. And uh, a fish came up and, and I'm like, hey, we got one up here. And Harry went to grabbed his rod and I'm like, hey man. And Harry's like, tease it in. So I grabbed the rod and I teased it in and I popped it out, got the bite, got the fish on, and and once the boat went into reverse real hard, Dietmar wakes up. It's like, uh, uh, uh. Well, why didn't you wake me up? I was we tried. And uh, he said, who teased the fish? And I said, I did. And then Harry said, man, he's better than you, Dietmar. I don't know why he hadn't been teasing all week. And, <laughs> D- and uh, he's like, why haven't you been teasing? And I said, well, Dietmar told me not to touch the rods. And he said, screw Dietmar. And at that point, Dietmar never got his hands on another rod the rest of the trip.
0: Was so- that possibly that trip... Um- a connection that this is something you want to do. Oh yeah. I mean this yeah. was like I'm I'm so, feeding these fish, I'm teasing uh, them, we're yeah, catching it, them on fly rod. I'm all over. I it. learned
2: I was re- interacting with the fish that I never had the opportunity and didn't even really understand that you could interact with a fish like that and control it. And uh so that was far more exciting than just waiting for a fish to to bite. Actually I learned a lot. I was able, able to teach anglers to you don't have to just sit there and wait for a fish to take it away, take it away, take it away. Okay, now I'll give it to them. Um, so it helped me in my conventional uh, uh, work later on. But Harry uh, Dietmar was running a boat called the Ultimate Thule out of Bud and Mary's, and uh, Harry had booked him for thirty days in Saint Thomas, and uh, I had been working basically for the the Hunters Crew for like six years and uh harry offered me the opportunity to be his teaser man in st thomas and i dropped that job like a hot rock and uh signed up and uh so knowing i only had 30 days of employment (laughs) unfortunately but i figured that you know i had spent part of a season in st thomas in 88 now i'm going back there in 90 Mm -hmm. and uh so i kind of had to lay the land and i figured I, i could get some some
0: side work to, right. to make a up quick for it. question here was harry was harry already doing a lot of offshore bill fishing at this time so or, th- or when one. did he make the move because harry harry gray caught so many world records on fly so at some point he made a big commitment to chase these records do you yeah. know when that took place so
2: he he had started two years before that that i came on board and uh but the What helped him to catch the records was a combination of my offshore experience and his fly fishing experience. It was, you know, his rods were too whippy. The rods were too long. His hooks were too big. The fly line was too long. So those are all the observations that I made and made changes to it. And then uh, I just really took control of the teasing side of it. And, wasn't uh,
0: Billy Pate an inspiration in one yeah,
2: way? Yeah. So his his main goal, Harry he had a uh vendetta uh with uh Billy Pate, because uh at uh, one of the tournaments they were at the same table and and uh uh Billy told well, Harry was telling uh Billy about his uh attempt to catch a blue marlin on fly that season. And that he was going back to St. Thomas the next season. And there was a pretty good chance that he might break his record. And And Billy told him, uh, and Harry always would tell it in, in uh, Billy's southern accent, he said, boy, you don't have enough time or money to break my record. <laughs> and that pissed Harry off. And so he was just on this mission.
0: He didn't let up for a long time.
2: He, uh. You know he he was with the help of Dietmar, uh Dietmar was you know picking boats for him and crews, and they had some pretty good. They did a they did uh, the summer before uh, with uh, with a really good captain from up north on in a, on a Garlington called the Classy Lady, and uh, those guys got a gaff and a fish, but they had they had ropes on the gaffs. You know the rules were kind of vague, and they didn't and, know the rules, and and a lot of people didn't know the rules. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know you weren't allowed a, a, a rope on the gap. A
0: flying gap can't be tied,
2: tied yeah. to the boat. Yeah, it has to be a, a straight gap. Yeah.
0: Duck Camp makes outdoor goods so you can outdoor good from the shallow water flats to the mallard filled marshes. Duck Camp is there to make you feel comfortable and enhance the quality of your time in the elements. Not only do they make some of the best outdoor apparel on the market but they support many of the organizations near and dear, fighting for a resource in the natural world. Check them out at duckcamp.com and tell them we sent you. Starting from a 90-year-old family recipe, Wickles are wickedly delicious pickles packed with garlic and peppers, a staple in our skiff and all shoreline lunches. Originating from Sim's grandmother's kitchen to a pantry near yours, from pickles, okra, relishes, and spreads, check them out to elevate all of your meals to the next level.
2: We were able to go to the IGFA and at that time and uh, and ask if we could put a, a tea handle on the gaff, and so we built a couple gaffs and uh, uh, in Fort Lauderdale and. Uh, uh, took off to
0: St. Thomas. What was that like? I can't even imagine your first time going. So the first time
2: I went to St. Thomas, I flew there. And so they had asked me, uh, because I wasn't technically the mate on the boat. I was Harry's teaser man. So the, they asked if I would help get the boat down to St. Thomas. And, uh, so I, I agreed. And, uh, uh, Dietmar, he, uh, he said uh, to me he goes you know i know you smoke weed and uh, he was always harping on me about smoking weed he said anybody smoked weed was dumb while he's doing a big line of coke right (laughs) so so so, uh he invited me to a party at his house and and there was a there was a bunch of fishing celebrities there and it was a big uh, pretty Pretty good.
0: Partner. Any names you want to throw
2: no, out? I think <laughs> Come somebody, on, we they, want to hear the names. I like, in trouble. But I did see a guy there that I thought was Flip Palette.
1: <laughs> I thought, <laughs> and, I thought. But I it thought. turned out
2: to be John Donnell. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that, so that makes they, sense. They look so, so similar. So you know? if Donnell was there, Flip so, was nearby.
2: So, uh, it, yeah. but uh, yeah, I thought because I was like, hey, is that Flip Palette? They go, no, that's not Flip that's that's john Donnell. that's that's craig key and uh, <laughs> so I, that was my first time meeting him and uh, uh so it was a lot of fun it was a good party but Demar said don't i don't want any weed and i said no i won't have any weed don't worry i know you can get all you want down there in the virgin islands that's not a big big deal so so we uh we're we're chugging along and uh d was partying every night and he was up late hours and, uh, and I in bed early and, uh, you know, we back to having no GPS, we had our charts and, and, uh, uh, Alan Starr was our, uh, you know, we had a big sit down with him and he told, told us, you know, how, what Island we needed to stop and which, you know, go above this Island, below that Island. So this
0: and, is running from Florida over yeah, to St. Thomas to St. Thomas, yeah.
2: and, and, uh, Dietmar kept falling asleep running the boat. And uh, I was sitting there next to him, and he was neck all the way back. Oh, man. Snoring away. And and I was sitting there looking at him, and then this uh, uh, film canister fell out of his pocket. And uh, so I jumped off the seat and grabbed it and opened it up, and it was full of Coke. So I was like, what you asshole? Gave me all that grief, and now he's got this and it could have been in the cockpit on the floor and we could have been stopped by the coast guard. And at that time the zero tolerance was a real big deal. When yeah. Take everybody in the boat and all that. So, so I, I kept it in my pocket for a while. <laughs> and, and, and then. Did you, we had,
0: t- did you, did you we open
2: had, up and see what it smelled like?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I knew what it was about.
2: So, but I, uh, I, uh, you hit it from him yeah i didn't want him to give it back to him i wanted him to sweat it out and i could tell he he was looking for it the other crewman was named uh he was a captain craig murphy and uh they they were co-captains on on the boat and uh so we uh we got to saint thomas and uh we started our fishing and uh it started out kind of slow and uh people kept knocking on the boat late hours asking for DMAR he was staying up at a condo up on the hill called Sapphire and uh I was like oh he's he's up at the uh condo man they're like hey can I can I buy a gram for me I'm like a gram what are you talking about oh sorry man wrong guy and I was like he was dealing yeah yeah found out later he brought a whole key was Harry was Thomas. Harry
0: Gray involved with that too? Yeah, Harry paid, He paid
2: for the he paid he bought it, gave it to Dietmar to bring down, down there. Yeah, and uh so they were partying like rock stars every day.
1: And that was the first time you realized that this kind of operation is going on. Well, with Dietmar selling.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's
1: I mean, I knew they were
0: all you know doing it recreationally yeah, yeah. and having a you know. Was there uh, a ever a point that night? you wanted to bail off that boat knowing that you might be at it, risk with these it, guys? Yeah. Later on down
2: the road, it started getting a little wild. Um, I mean, you, you grow up in the Keys, you, you see that kind of stuff all the time. Well, Also, you know, too,
0: so. uh, I think big boats and offshore guys, too, partied hard. I mean, you read the book that Skip Smith wrote, yeah, The Madam you know, and the was, Hooker. They are always in strip clubs and yeah, and, and yeah. chasing a, chasing you know, a party. Harry, every night, he'd
2: we get in, I'm washing the boat, taking care of the equipment and getting ready to go to dinner and go to bed and he, he'd he go straight to the bar chasing, chasing women every single night. I love I and, love that. I uh, yeah. just
1: can't believe you guys used to go out early in the morning and eight foot. No, we wouldn't hungover. go out early. Oh, no. Uh, no, nah, we didn't leave early. <laughs> <laughs> well, regardless, you guys got to have hangovers. We'd have,
2: he'd invite people and we'd have new crew and, and like. Ron, he hired Ron Hamlin to, you know, we fished the first moon. It it was kind of slow for us for whatever reason. We just weren't getting fish up. And then when we had him on, Dietmar was the captain and, uh, he's not, he wasn't very aggressive uh, on the wheel and back, uh, and, back, and, yeah, down back and down, pivoting, whatever needed to be done. He just really, he was very one dimensional in how we ran a boat. So, um, you know uh and I and I hadn't fished with a lot of captains that were a lot better than that. And uh so I didn't realize that uh you know, that we were really uh in a in a bad way of not having the right skilled person on the wheel. So uh he uh he brings uh Harry, he's partying the loveland brothers Stuart and jimmy loveland brought ronnie out of venezuela because he was having a hard time down there and uh, with with all the coke and what have you and of course first person he runs into is harry and they had a past together partying so uh so uh harry and ronnie start whooping it up and next thing i know ron hamlin's on the boat and i had heard of ron hamlin Very famous, yeah. You know, guys talk about his book and and uh, all the tournaments he won, and you know, and I, I was, uh, I was shocked to see this mess of a person that I had heard about was so legendary. And uh, and of course, uh, with cocaine, he's next level asshole, and uh, so, um, it it made for a pretty Pretty tough week uh moon he fished the whole moon with us and uh and he he then started dropping hints on harry to to get into conventional go for some conventional records so i had signed up for the whole fly deal i mean although the conventional thing sounded cool um you know all the work was left for me to do fill the reels do all the leaders all the baits and everything so so i mean i i you know pulled through it and got it you know got it done but the end of the day whenever a a sizable fish would come up ronnie would say throw throw the whatever pitch the 12 or whatever we had there harry would just keep throwing his fly rod so he was just so focused with that thing he didn't want any part but so there was a little frustration there on my side and then uh ronnie got into trying to tie my knots in the cockpit and uh, I cut his knot off and he wanted to kick my ass. And so I pulled my bait knife on him and I told him I'd gut his ass like a mullet, get the effing out of my cockpit. And, uh, so he did, he got out and, and, uh, (laughs) (laughs) this is the wild west on the high seas. (laughs) Went, went, Went back inside the boat, slammed the door and, but I did hear him say that he goes. I like that kid, uh, Harry.
1: Because uh, Harry
2: said, "Roddy, you better, you better get out of his cockpit. He's going to stab you." And uh, but, um, uh, uh, so we 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 you know we're got off on the wrong foot there, and uh, uh, we fished that moon, and uh, um, now it was time to do boat maintenance, get your tackle together, get ready for the next moon. Harry and Dietmar were flying to uh, Costa Rica to do a fly tournament and uh, with, with Tim Choate on his uh, brand-new Boat the Magic. Mm. And uh, so Ronnie c- comes walking in at like 7 o'clock in the morning, obviously pulled another all nighter out there in the world of St. Thomas and said, uh, what are you doing? and i was rigging lures up and i'm like i'm just rigging lures i'm gonna wax the tower you know he goes you want to go fishing i'm like yeah actually i do he said uh so you know those texas guys over there and i'm like oh yeah the ones that i stole the texas flag off their boat harry paid me a hundred bucks to to do it (laughs) Uh, so (laughs) Like, huh? yeah, I, I got guess, their, I got their flag down. Here. Just gasping, right. thrown
0: <laughs> on the fire in Saint Thomas. So,
2: so they had been fishing for ten days, at least was the story, and they had not caught a blue marlin. Johnny Orr was the his dad owned the boat. He had, I think, he graduated college at thirty years old, and his dad said, "You take the boat to uh, you know wherever you want for a year." So he grabbed a couple of his buddies and and off they went, They ended up in Saint Thomas and. Ronnie had, uh, you know, charter fished them and uh, that family, and uh, he used to organize charters to go to the Great Barrier Reef, so he knew Johnny, uh, when he was younger, and Johnny knew him and as a great fisherman as he was, and uh, so, uh, Ronnie said, "I'll I'll fish with you, but I have to bring my mate," and at that time I didn't even know I was Ronnie's mate, but I became his mate that day, so he said get your lures that you have and uh we were big into the wide uh mold craft at the time and uh and what's that Uh yeah, that was a soft head lure mold okay. crafts the manufacturer uh so ronnie was semi-involved and and uh peter wright and helping uh frank johnson developed a, a really nice lure and it being soft it made sense for for teasing mm-hmm. uh, for the fly so Uh, but we also had them with hooks. And so I slapped the hooks in them and, and, uh, we jumped on the boat and the boat was at the fuel dock and there was, uh, there was this crew on the boat It was a three man crew, but there was, uh, no Johnny and the, the the boat was locked and they said, well, Johnny's inside. And, uh, so I didn't even know who Johnny was and we came, you know, good friends after this, but he, uh the crew was kind of like caught off guard and I felt like I was out of place, but you know, I'm just following Ronnie and, and, uh, we pull off and we're out there on the North drop and, and they put their lines out and Ronnie's up on the bridge and I'm hanging with the, helping out the the crew and, and, uh, the door opens up and I don't know, have you ever met Johnny or did you yeah. ever run into him? He, he's, uh, uh, you know, from Texas and, uh, larger in life, kind of guy. Uh, always had a good time. Always had a smile on his face. Very uh, animated. He said, uh, "Who are you?" <laughs> and I said, "I'm Ronnie's mate." And he said, <laughs> "The hook? Where's he at?" I said, "He's on the bridge." He's like, "No shit!" So the deal was, Ronnie and I each got a hundred dollars for every marlin we caught. That's that's the deal he'd made so of course i was pretty excited to be out there and try you know prime time uh and uh so
0: Ex- explain he, why ronnie hamlin was was known as the hook well so he had a audience. deformed
2: arm at right. birth uh yeah. i think it was
0: his right it's, arm it's kind of short like
2: yeah this, it's a little right? shorter so they somebody came up with the hook it was kind of hook and yeah. he, so he was the real captain hook man <laughs> And I can tell you, you know, I I was reading something somebody posted about him on Facebook. An old captain that had hired him, and uh, said, you know, he was reluctant to hire him because of his his arm, his disfigurement. But he said it didn't slow him down in anything that he needed to do. And I said. I swear he was probably one of the fastest real winders I've ever seen. And, and with, with that huh? yeah, 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 he could turn that handle like you wouldn't believe. And
0: he he was a, uh, on the verge of becoming a professional bowler. He he bowled like right. 10 oh, that's 300 right. yeah. uh games. Games, 3 wow. like 10 300 perfect games, like 10. He was unbelievable.
2: So, uh here's Johnny coming out of his hole, you know late morning and uh you know he's yelling at at uh, ronnie on the bridge how the come how that how, how, why the hell haven't we caught a fish yet and uh ronnie with his i used to make fun fun himself so his chicken wing and <laughs> n- nudged jorge moore off the wheel and uh bumped up the speed and and th- actually uh that boat was a uh pace of itch and uh ronnie had run it for several years it And so he was very familiar with that boat. And uh, so he told me to put the lures out that I brought. And they had four 130s, which was a little aggressive for there, but whatever. So we put our our lures on and started smoking around and hooked a really nice fish. And uh, about 400 or so. And uh, Ronnie turned the boat on it. And I had never, in all of my mating, you know, six or eight years of baiting uh, professionally at that time or more i'd never had a captain turn seeing a captain turn and run forward on a fish and we were going down sea with it and so we ended up on top of it in like three minutes and especially with the 130 and it turned out johnny knew how to how to use a, a a chair and uh so he was tight on that thing and lines whipping through the water cutting through you know slicing through vibrating back and forth because everything was so tight and uh fish is all lit up as green as could be and and uh the first mate went over there and grabbed the leader and and ronnie's yelling double wrap double wrap and he got a single wrap and got the swivel pinched down on him and uh ripped his glove off and pretty sure he thought he lost the finger and uh so he was out of the way the next kid went up there and and uh uh he didn't even take a wrap he just tried to grab the leader and the swivel went through his hand. so he he got a little burned and so and ronnie's and i was standing there with the tag stick and uh so you know it's it's not uh it's it's not good etiquette for you know the, the the guest mate to jump in front of the the other crew but now they were both out and and uh ronnie's yelling at me to grab the leader and double wrap and which i knew all that so we wired that thing up there and got it released and and then uh, i think we ended up catching several more fish after that and uh and that's when i, I realized that uh ronnie was next level as a, as a boat captain and i was like holy shit uh
0: so uh because he was really aggressive. And yeah, he, yeah, he was aggressive. He knew, he knew how to handle the boat did, real well. Because I know so, the, I know your your reputation is that you used to back down real hard. Uh, was well, did, it's not did just you, backing down, but run, you know, how to it's run the whole getting the
2: boat turned around using the using, you know, what power you have, you use the sea, you're using your rudders. You know, there's a lot. You know, there's, did
0: Ronnie teach you how to do all that by watching him? You know, or anybody else? So
2: you know what was funny. And, uh, and and I'll get I'll get to that was uh, but after I saw how Ronnie ran the boat as I I knew that it, there, if we didn't have Ronnie running the boat we weren't going to catch a blue marlin on fly so when Harry came back from his trip and now Ronnie had not had any source of coke for that two weeks and we ended up fishing with Johnny and we we worked a different deal because the hundred bucks a day for each of us for each fish was uh he was losing was, the deal yeah so <laughs> it went to 50 so we yeah we we cut a new deal and we stayed with him and uh ronnie and i really meshed at that at that point and uh so when harry came back i'd said harry um ronnie really knows how to run a boat and if you want to catch your record he needs to be running the boat deep needs to be in the pit with me and uh and don't give him any coke, you'll catch a record with this guy. And uh, so uh, Dietmar wasn't too happy about it, but he really didn't have choice. Uh, and Ronnie started running the boat, and uh, uh that moon we caught uh, Harry's first record,
1: which was and
2: uh, which was a two, 208, I believe, on 16 pound tippet. Wow, so uh, uh, then the partying really started (laughs) (laughs) so it started getting really (laughs) wild and uh so there was a lot more late nights uh the the boat wasn't raising fish real well and uh uh why the props were bent and i and i think they were bent because of the way ronnie would overhandle the boat
1: how would that not raise fish the vibration. So,
2: so there's a lot of different theories, um, uh, uh, you know, about vibrations and low frequencies and high frequencies, and and uh, you know, sometimes you just have bad luck. You're just not in the right place at the right, right. time. The in between the moons fishing with Harry, I uh, I signed up to commercial fish with with Benny Smalding. He had a boat there called the Play Baby, and uh, the Play Baby was a, although an old you know 19 oh boy what maybe maybe late 50s
0: that both. sounds like a party boat so, play baby yeah well yeah.
1: Just, you know the spalding family right <laughs> they have a history in that as well yeah yeah, yeah. so no tell me <laughs> i just know that and <laughs> yeah, the keys so, the spalding family
2: well so, so benny um benny spalding senior had uh he he got busted for uh some type of drug transaction and uh he ended up going to uh
0: we're going all the way back to bloodline now yeah well, <laughs> there, right? the, the real bloodline <laughs> yeah again. uh he,
2: I, I guess he was in uh the the air force base that's a prison up in north florida for a while and uh but when he got out i think his deal was uh he had to fish with uh, the he had to fish the boy scouts for like 2 years <laughs> So obviously he knew somebody. So so when he was done with his Boy Scout commitment, he said, "Well, he was in jail," he told me. He said, "When I get out of jail, you know, all, all, the one thing I thought about that I that I wanted to do before I die is take my boat through the Caribbean and fish my way all the way down to Venezuela." And I said, "Like, yeah, that's cool. Me too," you know. And uh so so I was commercial fishing with him when Harry wasn't fishing, and uh, we were catching tunas and, and selling them to the markets and and the restaurants and what have you. So I I really got to see how this play baby boat handled. And uh, so uh, Deepmar, uh, we were we were at the end of the of the tour with the ultimate thule, and Deepmar needed to bring the boat back. And uh, so I told Harry, I said Harry, if you want that twelve pound record then uh we need to we need to get Ronnie on the play baby and so uh and Benny had wrote along with us uh on the ultimate Thule. they were everybody was buddies and friends and partying together so <clears throat> uh Harry cut deal with uh, with Benny to to fish us and uh um Ronnie bent the props on that boat too actually uh but when your props get aired out you know you get so much cavitation and they overspin and then they grab water in reverse they tend to bend bend bend
1: back yeah that's crazy how water can bend a prop like that yeah
2: so it's uh so ronnie was running the boat he was running pretty aggressively which you know was you know his his way and uh uh, Harry was giving us a bonus every fish that we would catch. He'd give us a two thousand dollar bonus for so, a record fish or just a no, a, just a marlin. If, we, if, it, if it was a potential, if yep. it was hanging on the scale, and uh, for mar, you know the marlin. So, so uh, Ronnie was out partying. Man, he he disappeared for like three days, and we had signed up to do this tournament, uh, light tackle tournament. And it ended up being Skip Smith on one boat, running Ron Hamlin on the other boat. And uh and then Ronnie doesn't show up during the tournament. He's out partying like a rock star. So we had no captain. And uh and you know, we had to shove off. And uh and Benny was like, I'll run the boat. And then, you know, like commercial fish. Benny's like he's a super mellow dude. Just didn't think he was an aggressive boat driver. We really didn't have any other choice, so off we went with Benny. And Benny smoked Ronnie Hammond, uh, by far the best boat handler that I've ever been on the deck for. Really? Yeah. So, but Benny went back to the bluefin tuna stuff, you know, wiring bluefins and catching bluefins, and and you know he's got to be, you know, he's got to be over seventy five now. So um, he was doing all that stuff. Uh, his dad had a a charter boat out of pier five um and you know him and his brother ended up having charter boats but uh then they ended up taking their charter boats over to the bahamas and running ships over there and then running stuff back and forth so Mm -hmm. then he went off into uh you know that that lifestyle of uh you know um running drugs from a lot of different islands he he was you know, he said he was good friends with the Prime Minister of Jamaica and and uh he uh 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 was good friends with Samosa and uh and uh the other generals in Venezuela. Big red flag. And uh
0: so You don't wanna be bragging about I, I, that I just stuff. Listen,
2: yeah, I just like, yeah, whatever. These yeah. Just, these guys are just all all wasted out talking shit. But uh later I found out it was all real stuff. We we uh once uh we we caught I think we caught a fish that was hundred and forty five on twelve pound. Uh and then we went uh we left there, hit all these islands uh on the way to to uh, to uh to Venezuela. We had to go to Grenada and uh and so I've been hearing all these stories of all this smuggling and money they've made and all that. And uh we uh we ended up in St. Bart's and uh we uh we got invited to some one of benny's old friends uh or not benny's harry's old friends was a french guy that they had apparently sailed a lot of drugs out of the caribbean and all the way up north and uh and the the guy had this big compound 12 foot walls all around it ocean view and uh we pull up there and uh the big metal gates open up and there's there's a guard on each side with a little french machine gun and uh you know on a strap and they let us in and there was a kitchen uh next to the pool and an overlook the caribbean and uh it was funny uh that this guy supposedly had the nicest restaurant in insane parts and so he had this super duper chef that was going to cook for us and and there was uh two uh skipjack tunas in the sink thawing out. And uh so I said to the to the guy, I said, Hey, hey what's up with these uh Skipjacks? And the guy's like, Oh, he's didn't speak very good English, but I could tell he was saying something about tuna. And that time the whole sushi thing hadn't really kicked off, you know, and that was nineteen ninety. And uh so i said to Benny, I'm like, hey Benny, check out what we're having for dinner, just to get his reaction, and uh, it was pretty funny. He said, I going not eat that shit, and uh, <laughs> I said, well, then you, you know, I don't know what we're gonna eat here tonight because that's the main course. <laughs> and uh, the guy, I mean, we all were like blown away how good it was. This, the the way he prepared it, it was it was it was raw, but it, it was pretty awesome. That was like my first real sushi experience. experience so mm. So we, uh, we left out of there and uh, we, we uh, you know, like I said, we didn't have GPS and they were all hung over and they said, hey, uh, George, you drive the boat and uh, I'm going to get some sleep. And uh, I said, oh, where, where am I going? And he said, you see that island over there? I'm like, yeah, Just go to that, go to the right side of that island. When you see the marina, wake me up. And uh, so I ran over to that island.
0: Be nervous?
2: Yeah, I just okay, whatever. I I'd, yeah. I'd been driving my dad's commercial boat since I was a little kid. Right. I mean, I'd I'd driven all the way to Casal myself, eight hours straight, and uh and so so it was no big deal. Kick back and and uh, got there, went down the island, never saw a marina, and uh, I just pulled the boat back and woke woke uh, everybody up, and I was like, uh, penning through." there was no Marina. He's all oh, bullshit. You're just not paying attention to No, there's no Marina. We turn around and go all the way back. No Marina. And, uh, pulled up this little fishing boat and asked, uh, Hey, is this such and such Island? He's like, no, no man. This is, this is Montserrat. <laughs> so we went to the wrong Island.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, uh, so we ended up making our way to Grenada and, uh, the boat started running really bad. And, uh, so we uh we had to find some local mechanics to work on it benny had some parts injectors it was an injector problem and uh, which is not uncommon the old detroit engines and leaking oil and injectors popping so uh so he, he when you put the injectors in you have to adjust the rack and all that something i never learned how to do and uh, hope i never have to but uh so the locals got it all put together and. And Harry uh, gave me the passports for everybody and said, "Go clear out." Which Benny, being the captain, was the guy who was doing the in and out clearance. But he was still, you know, wrapped up with the engine. So I, I, I took the you know paperwork on and uh, went up there and gave it to this uh, uh, you know Grenadian guy, all dressed up in a police uniform, and in this little guard shack, and and uh, with a couple other other guys with him there and he starts looking down at the boat and he's looking at the passports and and he says uh so uh where's uh uh timothy and i said timothy he's like yeah timothy and i said no we don't have a timothy on board and he's like really and then harry came walking out and he's looking at it, and he's like, Yeah, that's the guy. He's like, that that's him. That's Timothy. And I said, No way. I said, Let me see his passport. And it said Timothy Thomas John on it. And I said, I said, uh, uh at that point I knew something was up. So it's like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, Well, uh, you know, I just went to work for these people. I'm just delivering the boat. <laughs> his nickname's Harry. That's all I know. And he's like, Oh, okay. And then they're looking at Cindy, her name was Cindy Anderson on the on the passport, but she was really Cindy Rosudo, Rizzuto, the Phil Rizzuto's daughter. Uh the famous baseball player, Scooter, I think it was his nickname, but so they they're looking at her age, which was like 24 and she was like 40. Right? And and you know, one of those sun worshipers with no Never put sunscreen on. So she was age. She yeah, so there was no way she was gonna be pulling off this twenty something year old age. And I said, Hey man, you know, she drinks a lot, she doesn't use sunscreen. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I don't know what to tell you. So the guy I said, Can we get cleared? And he says, No. And I'm like, Why? He said, Because immigration's not here. It takes customs and immigration to get you cleared out. I said, well, where's immigration? When are they coming back? He said, I don't know. They're at the airport. And a plane landed. So they're dealing with dealing with that. I was like, great. So I walk back, and I tell Harry, uh, they kept the passports and the paperwork for the boat. So I walk back to the boat, and I say, hey, Harry, you know, they're, they're kind of wondering why, you know. Uh, I told them your name was Harry, and they see a different name on there, and I didn't know that you guys were giving me this funky pass, passport, and they don't believe that she's 27 years old. And he said, you go up there and get those effing papers, and passports right now. Get them back here. I said, well, I don't think they're going to give them to me. He's like, get them. We're going to start the boat up, and we're going to haul ass. I was like, oh, great. And there he goes, Benny, start the boat. <laughs> so the <laughs> boat got fired up. And I'm watching them take the lines off and everything. And I go up there. And I was like, oh, what do I do? What do I do here? I surely couldn't grab it and run, you know. So I said, hey, can, can I take uh, the paperwork up to uh, to the airport and get the immigration to sign off on it? He's like, yeah, yeah, I guess you could do that. So I said, all right, well, let me have the papers. And, and uh, they were in the Ziploc bag and walk back to the boat. I just jump on and we drive off. And these guys come running down the dock all pissed off. And and uh Benny's like, or Harry's like, go Benny, go, go. <laughs> right? And uh, and uh he's like, Don't look at him. Don't have, nobody just ignore him. <laughs> and uh and Betty goes to spool that thing up and uh, just black smoke poured out of it, man. It didn't wasn't going anywhere. Sound it was <laughs> oh knocking God. and then clanking it's like, oh, please shit. So, uh, uh, Benny says, Harry, we got to turn around. And then Harry's like, Nope, <laughs> nope, we're not turning around. We're going. <laughs> I was like, Uh, like, oh my God, this is just, this <laughs> is crazy. So he's like, Nope, we're turning around. So we turn around. And then I'm thinking, Okay, they're probably going to arrest Benny and Harry. And, uh, but they just grabbed me and they took me off the boat. And, uh, took me into their guard booth for several hours interrogating me trying to get me to uh to admit that something was going on there and i said no we were just sea trolling and we wanted to you know your guys were working on the boat here and we just wanted to make sure it was running right before we spent the money to go up to the airport and back and and i just kept with that story and they said okay all right you are a fast talking machine so they said they said uh don't come back we're, you know, we're going to let you leave and don't ever come back there. i've been back there several times but, <laughs> but uh with a timothy passport <laughs> yeah well not not with his but pa- so ever, we we yeah. had to, we had to be, get our visas to go to venezuela that's why we were there and then uh we got the boat worked on that day and then took off and went to uh to venezuela
0: do you ever find out what the issue was with timothy and the real harry gray
2: well, I know his brother got busted and, uh, um, the, he has a bro- a twin brother, uh, named Lee. Oh no, it, it was Larry and Lee. So, uh, Harry was actually named Lee Barton Feller and, uh, Jim Gray with well, everybody in the fishing world knows of him. Uh, the story that was told to me, uh, by him and Dietmar was that, um, Jim Gray was actually a a maintenance guy in a uh, local trailer park in Isla Morada, and they bought his identity. And, uh, and I don't know where the Harry came from, but that's everybody always called him Harry. So he had, he had his Timothy Thomas John passport and his Jim Gray passport. And when he was fishing, he was Jim Gray. Whenever he was doing something else, he, he was, uh, Uh, timothy there so Mm.
0: when did you get on the boat and start running the boat or were you always were you always in the cockpit i was always
2: in the cockpit and uh you know i i was uh you know the guy uh it was my job to to have all the right teaser rods the right teasers um i i made the flies but harry always tied his own tippets and so you know i would set up the gear and uh get on a boat um put taglines in the riggers, uh, uh, they're really needed for the teasing stuff. Um, uh, you know, you name it. I was a walk and tackle shop, had all the gaffs, harness vests, um, and, uh, you know, just moved it from boat to boat. So we went from the ultimate Thule to the play baby. Then we're in Venezuela, the engine problem persisted. And, uh, we got in there in the middle of the night in Makuto and, uh, and you know, the only the only landmark that uh we had to go by was the blue Sheridan Makuto sign on top of the building. So as we were going down the coast, that's wow, you know what we had to to find. And once we there it is. Oh. It was like uh Columbus finding land. Yeah. <laughs> and uh and <laughs> interesting. So went in there and uh one of the things that uh that uh Harry and Betty uh used to do was more so it was hair, Harry prompted like to go to all the strip clubs every I went, I was in every strip club in the Caribbean. <laughs> I didn't even know they had strip clubs. I mean, it could be a place the size of this room to an elaborate hotel. S- and Skip
0: uh, said the same thing. <laughs> Harry
2: knew every single one of them. And, uh, I kept hearing about how beautiful the Venezuelan women were. And there was a, a club that, uh, uh, everybody kept talking about, and uh, so the first night I got there, you know, we got we got into the Sheridan Hotel like midnight, and uh, they they kept the restaurant open for us, and we had some Italian food there, and, and uh, I was like, uh, "Are you guys going to go out tonight?" And uh, they were like, "No, we're not going out." And I'm like, "Really? These guys are always going out." Like the one time I actually want to go out, they don't want to go out. (laughs) So, so I, uh, I took a shower and got all cleaned up and jumped in a, uh, one of the hotel drivers took me to this, this place and, uh, went in there and it was a slow night and there was probably 50 girls hanging out in there. And, uh, so I was at a table with like eight girls trying to learn Spanish. (laughs) And, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, that's so, a great excuse. Yeah. Yeah, it's educational. <laughs> and so, so I'm in there all by myself and there was probably like three other dudes in the whole place. The 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 bar people and the staff were all wearing tuxedos, red velvet floors, leather, you know, old English style leather sofas, high back sofas and, you know, booths, round booths. And uh, very very uh, elegant place, and uh, so uh, I'm there for about an hour, and and then here come Benny, come <laughs> walking in the door, and uh, he's like, ah. so he's you know pretty excited to see me in there, and uh, so he he jumps in the booth and and waves over like five more girls, and and we're in there you know drinking, you buy a whole bottle the deal there you get the whole bottle so you're serving everybody and it's probably a hundred dollar bottle which was a fortune back then um uh, and then uh and then here come harry <laughs> Harry come walking in and uh so um i think uh harry and benny um hired the whole staff that night and took them upstairs so so much for not going out <laughs> yeah <laughs> and they, they had to take a nap <laughs> yeah they so I uh, I grabbed one girl, took her back to the hotel, and and they they stayed there the whole day. The next day, they didn't come out till like the end of the day. And the next day,
0: the end of the day. Oh off my day. gosh! Oh my what uh, so, what? Tell me about this story where you had to steal some keys and get the hell out of someplace uh, so, in the middle of the night. So, so Benny, uh,
2: somehow in his uh, uh, former life, you know he. Uh, I was introduced to uh, a general in in uh, Venezuela, and uh, and then uh, uh, he, so all these stories started really coming to life as you know what I thought was just them drunk and talking about what they did. Well, apparently, when we got to Venezuela, a a whole caravan of military vehicles came pulling up. So Harry uh, Benny gave me a phone number. Said give this to the uh, to the dock master and have him call this guy and tell him I'm here. And we were at the end of the dock in a really big Marina. And, uh, and so I handed it over. The guy made the phone call. And an hour later, like 12 vehicles came pulling up and like two trucks with a bunch of, you know, uh, military dudes all come piling out, go down the dock. And, uh, to secure the dock and then this general dude gets out and comes walking down the dock gives benny a big hug and and uh you know what can i do for you it's great to see you and and all that and because uh, we made a couple of stops in venezuela but we didn't clear and uh benny said we don't have to clear my, my general friend says it's okay if anybody asks we just we give him this phone number so that was our clearing into the country, and we were in. And then later, the uh, uh, the engines needed to be worked on, and the uh, and the Venezuelan government flew two engines worth the parts wow. into the country for us to rebuild the engines. And uh,
1: Benny must have done something really good for this guy. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so, our first day of fishing. This picture that I brought here to show you. That was our that was our our sea trial to make sure that the engines, after being rebuilt, were right and tight, and there was a guy fighting a white marlin uh right out in front and uh Harry said, put, put the lures out, put them out, and the fly rods are already there. pop them out. I had these two washdown kids that were working for us. I couldn't hire the regular mates didn't want to work for us to fly fish because they thought it was ridiculous there was a izo something or other Japanese angler izo yeah he he had fished there
1: was that izo oh, right he fished th- the gold cup just
2: was. before we got there and everybody you know saw him you know trying to catch a marlin and with no avail and they were like that that's the dumbest kind of fishing on the planet <laughs> And nobody wanted and they're like oh you're fly fishing too No, nope, sorry uh so i couldn't get a mate and uh benny's son was mating for us uh kenny uh up until that point his wife was having a baby and that that baby ended up being Bo Basso's wife actually oh wow <laughs> so uh um we uh threw the lures out raised the fish hooked it up and put it in the boat like 20 minutes later and what was and, that uh, record that was over? A- so it was 145, but they just, so it was the first one caught on fly in Venezuela. It got disqualified over some, there was a lot of dispute. Uh, the Billy Pate was doing, from what I understood, and was doing a lot of protesting about the the previous two fish that we had caught. And, uh, and then we left uh, after this trip, uh, we went to Costa Rica. Uh, we left Venezuela, went to Costa Rica, and we flew in there and uh chartered a a, a couple of boats. Uh 131 Bertram called the Marlin Azul that uh I believe Billy Pate had actually caught a record on. And uh so it was it was kind of f- funny story. I this was in uh, around December, January period, December. It was in December when we caught this fish. And uh so now my 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 tour with Harry was over. Uh we did we accomplished what he wanted. He sure. wanted the 16, the 12, and uh and Benny uh, you know, got to Venezuela. And uh so we all uh, disbanded. We're going to disband from there. But uh uh Harry was going to Costa Rica to just go play around with sailfish. So he said, uh, "You know, as a tip, I'll invite you to come catch a couple sailfish," and uh, and I was really almost reluctant to do it because I knew if I didn't get back, uh, I was going to not get another job on the boat on a boat that I wanted to be on, and because uh, all all the positions would get filled for the season. So I, but I'd heard all this stuff about Costa Rica. So I said, all right, well, all right, maybe for a week. So we flew from we ended up going uh Venezuela, Colombia, Panama, and then into Costa Rica on these little shitbox planes. And with all our gear. And so had the gaffs, had the scales, had the flies, the feathers, you know, vices, you name it. We had it. So we go, put our gear out. And uh, with these uh, Tico guys, and uh, literally the first fish that came up, I thought it was a blue marlin. It was such a big sailfish. I was like, holy shit. We got a blue marlin. Grab the other rod. You know? And uh, and then the, the 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 crew was saying, uh, Pesvela. Pesvela I didn't speak any English. And I'm like, bullshit. Pesvela, my ass. That's a freaking blue marlin. Mm-hmm. As it started getting closer, I realized, and they're telling me, slow down, despacio, despacio. And I was so used to teasing Marlin. I was going Ripper. too fast. Yeah. And they're like, no, you got to let it eat it. And I'm like, what do you mean eat it? And my world, you let them eat it, you ain't getting it back. <laughs> so so uh, I slowed down and got in it, te- teased it in there, hooked it up, started jumping around. But, but uh, I, I, I skipped over a part that uh, was actually pretty funny. When we landed in, in Capos and we got out of a van, uh, we were going to the charter company, uh, office. It was a freestanding building. It was one of the banana boat office or banana industry offices. Uh, you know, Capos, it's a big banana spot years ago. Well, another vehicle pulled up and, uh, I think it was, uh, I think it was Lee Baker and it was Billy Payne. Got out of the the van, and you know you go in there the office, and they would have drinks and stuff like that. So, so here we are after breaking his record, and uh, standing in front of this uh, this old uh, wooden building, and uh, so it was kind of kind of an odd situation to be in. Uh, at least for me, I'm like, oh, how's this gonna play out, right? And Harry kind of shuffled over there. It's like, hey, Billy, you know, I broke your record, right? <laughs> I was like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> he's like, yeah, Harry, I heard. Congratulations. And uh, he's like, so they're they're kind of making small talk, and and I go to to, to Lee Baker. I said, um, so how's the fishing? And, he's, and Billy goes, son, it's pretty slow. He said, we only raised 35 sailfish today. And I was like, what? What? And I was like, 35? Holy shit. This is, this is paradise, right? So we we get out there. At the time, the most sailfish that had been caught on a fly rod was three in Costa Rica. That's what we were told. And uh, so our first day with side by side and just fishing the same grounds with Billy and a few other boats. Uh, we caught nine in our first day and, uh, we went out the next day and caught 12 and Billy left the building. <laughs> he packed his shit and left early. <laughs> so he was pretty pissed. Um, and, uh, so I, uh, I, I'd asked the crew how, how big are these sailfish? And they, They said they're 150 pounds. So I'm ripping through the book. And when we got back that night, I was like, we could break every fly record in the book if these are 150-pound sailfish. They looked 150 pounds. And we pulled a couple of them up. It's like, Jesus, these things are monstrous. So uh, we didn't really have the right tippet, but we carried a lot of gear. Because I Harry and I had this thing where whenever we weren't you know, doing business fishing where we were after the marlin, if we were screwing off somewhere and we would fish, he would fish fly and I would fish spin. And we had a competition to who could beat who. And uh, he, he he had said that, that there's no way I could beat him. And I used to whip his ass all the time. I was like, no way. With my nets and my spinning rods, man, I, I could crush him. So we had we had two pound tests, four pound tests, six pound tests, everything for the spinning rods for fun fishing. And uh and so I said, Well, we can make some tippets out of this stuff. And I gave him the line and he made the tippets. I tied the flies and and uh we uh we went after the eight pound tippet, which was Rufus Wakeman's oh, right. record at the mm-hmm. time. And uh he was He was so excited to try to beat Rufus's record, and uh, he uh, he he called Rufus Rufus Dog. We're gonna beat Rufus Dog's record, and I didn't even know who Rufus Dog was at that time. I'm like, all right, that sounds good. Let's beat beat that guy's record. So we got out there and uh, we we gaffed the fish, threw it in the boat, and uh, I don't remember. And maybe his record was like eighty pounds or something. And uh, the fish wasn't even big enough to beat his record. And uh, it, it was supposedly 150 pounders, for, <laughs> as far as the crew was concerned. But once we hung it on the scale, and they were like, oh, your scale's broken. I'm like, no, our scale's not broken, man. These fish just don't weigh that much. So we had to start focusing on, on finding the right size fish. And uh, so a lot of times we'd tease them in. They didn't look good. They wouldn't go away. You'd have to just knock them in the head with a rod. You know, take. Uh, um, I would take the end of a spinning rod and just s- smack them uh, to get them to go away. That's how aggressive they Maybe were. Maybe that's about why these. Tom Evans calls so, them uh, sea turds. Yeah. Well, I think Bron Hamlin started that. The sea so, turd. Yeah. That. That's where I learned it from. And uh, and of course, it was funny to later have to fish with them in in uh, Guatemala, <laughs> sea turd capital of the world. So, but. Uh, so we, we, uh, once we, we gauged the size of the fish and realized we needed to get something bigger, uh, I think uh, within a couple of days, we, we boated a fish that was a little over 100 pounds. And uh, so then we, uh, we dropped down to six, uh, I believe, and uh, we caught another fish. And we dropped down to four and then uh, caught another fish. And the, the one on six didn't go. We were using a a line that wasn't right, but it's what we had. Right. Uh, so as far as I know, unless anybody's beat it recently, those, those two, uh, four and eight pound Pacific records are still holding. How long did this run with Harry last? So, uh, so then after that, uh, so it's only a couple years or so. Right. After that, we, uh, I, you know, uh, of course, I lost any chance of getting a good, a good deck hand job, uh, you know. So I said, "Harry, why don't we let's catch that blue mar? Let's catch that Pacific blue marlin." And because uh, I started engaging with the different crews and mm-hmm. talking and learning about the environment there, and sure the the fishery and the seasons and and uh, you know they 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 claim there's blue marlin up to the north, but it's super rough that time of year in the winter because you got the papagayo winds that are blowing in there. And they could be, they could puff up to 100 miles an hour,
1: mm.
2: and uh, so I, uh, I, I got Harry talked into it, and uh, so he had, uh, uh, he said uh, he had heard that Bubba Carter had a new boat, and it was a big boat where most of the boats were r- relatively small in the 30 foot range. He had a 40 something foot game fisherman that had just been built in the city, and they trucked it down, and so. Uh, so it was a great opportunity I've heard, uh, Bob a great captain and, and, uh, brand new game fisherman. So we, uh, we packed our gear up and flew in there and, you know, had to make a couple buzzes across the the runway, which is a field with cows on it and a, and a, like a tin roof, uh, you know, 12 by 12 tin roof thing and, uh, in dirt. And so we, so we took a private, uh, Cessna of some sort, buzzed it, ran the cows off, landed. Bubba was there in a little Toyota truck and threw her gear in it and, and, uh, went out and got her ass kicked, uh, cause it was rough and, uh, hooked a few fish. And, uh, um, I don't think Bubba realized how serious we were. And, uh, you know, I remember the first decent fish we had hooked up. I was already in my gear and like, why are we not backing down? Why are we still sitting here static? Uh, and then I was like, Oh, you guys are serious. <laughs> started cranking on it. And, and, uh, so, uh, another guy over there, so that's a Greg Penley. He was running one of the Flamingo charter boat. There was a fleet of game fishermen out of Flamingo. And I think it was, was called the Flamingo two or something like that. He was down off, uh, uh, Gu- uh Guanamar and, uh, a little further South. And there's a point there where, you know, those Papagaya winds are blocked by the mountains, so it goes from rough to literally flat calm. And uh, I mean, it's it's pretty b- bizarre uh, seeing that. But we uh, packed up the boat and our crew and took off to to go to Guanamar Hotel and uh, fish out of that Playa Carrillo. And uh, I think that fish was uh, uh, two oh eight. Uh, that we caught there was the first fish and uh, on fly but uh, uh, one of the problems we had was all the pictures we took for the IGFA purposes uh, with tape measures and the scale and the crew and the gaffs and the rods that you need to submit with the application were lost and uh, they didn't come out it's like they got x-rayed or something or the camera malfunction, never really knew what the problem was. But here we, you know, we had Bubba Carter was the the captain, which, you know, was a very well-known captain at the time. Um, And now this is one of our fourth or fifth, sixth, seventh fish we've submitted to the IGFA. And the word was Billy Pate was protesting our stuff. Then we had Ron Hamlin involved. We had Penny Spaulding. Of course, he had... tainted past um so there was apparently an, an investigation of some sort and the fact that now we don't have pictures for one of the fish was not looking really good for us and uh, being the first Pacific and and I kind of got myself in trouble um was I went to the igfa and and you know, Harry's like okay Harry would kind of stay and then send me back for stuff you know whether' Materials or equipment, what have you. So one of uh, my jobs was to go to the IGFA and find out why our record hasn't been passed yet and what's going on. And uh, I, when I, I was staying at my mom's house here in Boca out west, and uh, and I used that as my address. And I met some French people. They took some pictures and and uh, totally forgot about it. But they took my address and they sent the picture of the fish with the scale with the whole crew Mm. laying on the on the on the ground and uh and it had its pec fin was pulled out on it so i was like holy shit we got we got a picture so i go i go to the igfa with it and i said here's the picture and they're like oh okay well we'll have to examine it and uh i'm like really well who, who who who's going to examine it i mean you here it is, clearly a Blue Marlin. They, we're going to have Guy Harvey look at it. And at that time, the only thing I knew about Guy Harvey was he sold a shitload of T-shirts and the keys. And I said, <laughs> the T-shirt guy? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> the T-shirt guy is going to be the one who's going who's gonna to let us know whether this is a Blue Marlin or not. And they're like, Well, oh. Excuse me, but Doctor Guy Harvey. You <laughs> know, like, uh, oh, okay, sorry. So I don't think they'll ever let me live that one down. But but uh, uh, eventually he 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 passed it, and uh, the t-shirt guy said it's good.
1: But and during during this time, you guys, when you walked in, you said you were breaking a lot of four-piece sage rods. Yeah, and that that story is great about what you told us and
2: yeah. Brandy well, Shop. so we we. uh the rod that I have in this picture in Venezuela was uh, was a one-piece. And because those different uh, multiple-piece rods were breaking, and my experience in the offshore was one, I wanted a stiffer rod, and I wanted a shorter rod, and I wanted a one-piece rod because the failure points seemed to be at the ferrules. So uh, they uh, uh, we went back with those rods to— the places where Harry had bought them, they wouldn't even at that time they weren't even replacing them. Uh, so we went into, uh, we left where we got those or Harry bought the four piece rods, three and four piece and decided, well, let's go check this guy, Randy Tao out. Randy had worked for Hal Chittam So he had left Hal and started his own shop. So he was a pretty known rod building guy. And uh, so we pulled up to his little shop and, and uh Billy uh uh Pate and his wife Jody were walking out of the out of it, that shop. And uh so we they were they were moving fast pretty fast, so we had no interaction and, and I don't think there anybody cared to, but they drove out and we walked in and and here was this one piece rod sitting on this glass cabinet. And I picked it up and I was like, Harry, this this is the rod we need right here. What's the story with this? Oh, Jody Pate just brought it back, said it doesn't cast worth the shit. And, uh, I said, what we need to do is just chop, chop a few inches off the end of it, put the tip back on and let's, let's go, let's use this one. And, uh, and that's what we broke Billy's record with.
1: <laughs> so it's a great w- story. worked out pretty good. <laughs> did, did that and, ever get back to Billy or Jody? You know?
2: Well, I don't know. Uh, so Harry sent me to talk to, uh, uh, you know, uh, Randy about building another rod just like that. And, uh, but only, you know, paying, uh, you know, uh, you know, discounted rate on it and that we would tell everybody that, you know, about it and his shop and, and Randy uh, refused. And so we pretty much didn't tell a lot of people what yeah, rod, right, right. Cause Harry was pissed that he couldn't get, you know, discount. some kind of discount for it. And, uh, but uh, I believe Randy told a lot of people that the Kennedy Fisher was a, a right. good rod, and uh, and a lot of people tend to jump on that rod. But they they didn't use this same rod I, for whatever reason. They built a whole new blank, and it was never anything like this rod.
0: Yeah, a lot a lot of the early tarpon guys were using the Kennedy Fisher, you know, the
1: one piece rod. But really, you just you just want a fly rod that's built for fighting fish. Yeah, we need
2: something. For lifting versus casting. Right.
1: Because you're not and, really, you're just chucking it out
2: there. And I mean, really, compared to the rods, I mean, we really did a lot with the shitty equipment we had back then. I mean, everything from the real, I mean, we smoked, we were smoking these uh, Billy Pate Marlin reels uh, from T and And I took, I flew back with a couple of them that the cork was all tore up. And uh, knocked on their door. You know, I mean, they, pay, they, they literally didn't even have a sign on their old warehouse that was in Pompano. And uh, pretty small place. And uh, knocked on the door and knocked on this door, knocked on that door, and somebody finally opened up. And I'm like, hey, so where do you build these rails? I'm like, they're like, yeah. I said, my drags are all smoked up. I need new drags. And they're like, that's impossible. I said, no, it's these are tore up. I need new ones. They're like, OK, come in here. They're going to go like look at it and tell me everything's fine. They took it apart and they are like, Holy shit. What the hell have you been fishing? I said, It says Marlin on it, doesn't it? <laughs> I was like, you got any you got any better drags in this? So I gotta take these back and catch some more. And they gave me some really good grease and uh showed me how to clean them a little better and and, and so we ended up having to uh grease them uh every night the the fly lines we realized were, you know, we were using tarpon fly lines, and they were just too fat. And uh, uh, so they drug in the water, and they would pop tippets from the fly line as the fish would zigzag around. He'd create these bellies, and and they'd start popping the tippets. So I said, Harry, we only need to cast thirty feet. Why do you got one hundred and fifty foot of fly line on here? Let's 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 get the skinny end of that. Strip all the rest out. Cut it off. And then we were able to stay connected and not break mm-hmm. as many fish off, shorten the rod. We went from uh, dacron to micron, mm-hmm. so went uh, a much lighter micron than what
1: typical tarpon guys were using. So, right. and that's so, extremely important when you're using six pound or four pound. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah,
2: and uh, real big time on the on the light stuff. Yeah. Did sure. you guys
0: ever uh, put a section of monofilament behind the fly line? We fly line monofilament so, yeah, back. Butt, we have a
2: butt section, so we'd go six inches between the hooks. You know, no, no I am no. talking
0: on the other side of the fly line.
2: Oh, uh, you know, because no, cause we no. used
0: to when Harry and I were trying to catch a six pound tarpon record, Harry would put a hundred yards of monofilament behind the fly line mm. before you get to the back. There,
2: end. there, there were different running lines like that, uh, but we found just getting rid of all, it, it, you know. Uh, we could get that micro I don't remember what pound tests we were using but it was Micronite, I think it was called it was and so it was so it was small so you didn't thin. need it
0: you didn't need a cushion or anything that stretched right
2: yeah. right and and whenever you had any kind of stretch when you're chasing a fish in the boat it would it would create more belly and so anything that could cut through the water cleaner was the direction we would go mm-hmm. and and that and so a lot of those little things, were what made it possible to to catch that that marlin? And
1: Dingo so, also said you like to fish like the lightest boat possible. Like you yeah, you yeah. cut your toothbrush. Like you'd weigh everything. You'd have a half a tank, right? Yeah, or, and
2: one roll of toilet paper. That's really? It. Yeah, just I I probably came in and flamed out in the Saint Thomas. I've worked. I, I've been fortunate that every time I've run out of fuel, I'm literally touching the fuel dock.
1: Wow. That's probably
2: happened to me a, a half a dozen, dozen times. But yeah, Would I, you I, ever ca- be f- I calculate exactly how much we need for the day. <laughs> and, why why
0: uh, was it important to have such a light boat? Well,
2: to to be able to get on to the, to the fish. Um, well, one, when you have a heavy boat, it's putting out a pressure wave. And, uh, you know, you only have an eight-foot gaff. And if your pressure wave is 12 foot out as you're backing up, you're never going to get to the fish. Can't get mm. to the fish. So... Any boat that was light enough, less uh, uh, waterline, you, you know, you go walk around a dock and if you see a waterline like this, you know, you're probably not going to. Most of them are going to be down here. Mm-hmm. So that much to the bottom, uh, that's just a start. Then, and that's a foot the, and a half. Just for Then the, the angle of the shafts is pulling your stern down and then you're, now you're taking on water and you got the whole uh flat surface uh, you know it's like pushing a brick wall through through the water right so uh so it's very important to uh pick that right boat to to be successful hmm. so
0: when when did it change as far as boat building to modify the transom edges and and, and surfaces to chase marlin well was there a specific the, the, the time was probably late
2: 80s 90s uh gns was probably one of the uh, the only if the, or if the fewest uh, that have attempted to try to make a boat that would back up, uh, you know, with, without sinking and, and putting that pressure wave out. I don't know if they, they necessarily were worried about a pressure wave because most of those guys were conventional fishing. Right. But, you know, there's rounded transoms have you know, several companies have put rounded transoms out, which will help. Uh, reducing the shaft angle putting pockets in reduce the reduced shaft angle mm-hmm. but if you get too much of a pocket then you you're you, you create uh uh the possibility of more cavitation in those uh, cavitation bubbles where you lose uh you lose grip right. with your prop uh I, I would also take uh uh go after props and uh and and you know take cup out of them uh you know uh that reduces the vibration in reverse makes it smoother in reverse doesn't make it great going forward and reduces uh some efficiencies but uh for backing up that 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 would help so um, you
0: felt like backing up was a priority versus going forward in in chasing fish yeah because and in that game to, that to, to
2: boat it it's obviously you're going to have to handle it at the transom at the stern or on the side not mm-hmm. necessarily the transom but but uh um, yeah, you would have to handle it from the cockpit. So, um, you know, if there, if a fish in conventional fishing, I'm all about turning and running fish down forward. I uh, haven't really had to do it that much in fly fishing because what a lot of people don't realize is that you know you're using this super light gear, really small hook. The fish are really not not intimidated by it. So
1: they're not screaming out there.
2: No, no, they're uh they, they you know they know they're hooked there's no doubt but it's not uh it's not it's they not don't they, act like it's a life or death situation well, it's more I th- of an irritation I,
0: I i think too though because fly fishing especially if you're fishing for records your maximum tippet is 20 pounds so you don't have a whole lot of drag on this right, fish yeah. and i'm thinking like with an offshore 130 you got 40 pounds of drag so they're thinking oh my god there's jaws got right. me
2: yeah exactly And, uh, and, and I actually uh, recommend angler to not have more than two pounds of drag on the reel. And when that fish is rolling, it's nothing you're going to do. Slow it down. Right. So just let it roll. They actually wear themselves down, you know, by, you know, swimming faster. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and one of the things we noticed in St. Thomas is that, uh, and which it helped me, uh, uh, and all the other uh, places in the world that i fish is that all these fish are on a migration pattern when when they're coming through somewhere they don't ju- they don't live there they're they're just passing through so when you when you hook them they they literally just want to stay on the same path that they were on so once you know the path the direction they're going if, if a fish pulls off a couple hundred yards of line and it looks like it's going straight down it's now gone back to its its original direction. So if you know that direction and you keep moving with it, even though it's going down, you just start heading. You can you can eventually get that belly and and catch back up to that that fish. Uh, so, but that
0: too is one of the reasons why you change the fly rod design or the fly rods that you right guys to were be able to. Gary.
2: You know, we don't fight them straight off the back of the boat. We want it to line off the side of the boat so that we're not behind the belly. We want to get in front of the belly. And you want to have a rod that's stiff enough to have the line off this boat far enough to where the captain can see whether the fish is going left or right uh, or just straight on. So if, you're, if your rod is a noodle and you're standing there and it's like this, he, the, the captain really can't tell which way the fish is going. you got to have that line, that rod up there yeah, with at least three quarters of it stiff with a nice little soft yeah. tip mm-hmm. from there. I hate to
1: break up the party, but we're going on two hours, and my batteries only oh, have a couple more minutes left. Well, thank you. Well, we I, didn't even get into the boat building and design, yeah, Chatham. Yeah, uh, let's make this I,
0: transition real fast because we worked together with you at Chatham. How did you? Just summarize. How'd you go from offshore fishing world records, uh, driving these big boats, to getting with Hal and designing these super? That might be a longer conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: well, you know, always having the love of of skiffs and being on a lot of different skiffs growing up in the Keys. Um, you know, it was easy for me when when uh, I started working with Hal to to have an understanding of the goals that we wanted to achieve right and uh with the using of advanced composites and uh you know how uh you know although I knew Hal as a teenager when he opened up his shop and bought a lot of stuff from him for my clients that I worked for I didn't uh, get reacquainted with him until about 2005 and I was on a mission to build my own sport fish boat and he was on a mission to buy um, Heinz Farley and build a game boat for fly fishing so we kind of had the same same we were going down the same path just a little bit different process and uh we ended up on the same uh, uh tournament team and uh we just started bouncing things off back and forth and uh you know he gave me some literature on advanced composites and it just so happened that I had worked on a Heinz Farley. That was a foam cord boat. And I also worked on a Choi Lee. That was one of the first foam cord sport fish boats. And I had run that for six years. So I had a lot of confidence in it. And when he showed me the actual you know, specs and the physical uh, properties of it, I was like, well, if this is true, nobody should be building a wood boat. And uh, so uh, he... Uh, uh, hired me to be a project manager at Heinz Farley. And, uh, but unfortunately the deal didn't go through and, uh, we, uh, ended up developing a boat, uh, with, uh, an architect and, uh, you know, we worked with him for a year or so and we had a facility. Uh, we had staff from New Zealand coming over to help us do it, uh, the equipment and, uh, and then the, by that time it was 2009, and uh, uh, we we lost our, our our backer for it, the Sportfish project. But the whole time we talked about a skiff we would do for ourselves. So we already had this whole skiff sure. thing all planned out, and we were just waiting to to get the big boat project rolling and then do it do it. And uh, and then when we lost the big boat project, the there was already a deposit for a CNC machine for a 60-foot sport fish boat. So let's, instead of walking away from it, let's just build that skiff. And Hal initially was reluctant. He said he didn't want to be in the skiff business anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I really didn't want to either, but I wanted to understand, I want to have more hands-on experience with advanced composites. And we were we were talking with several different builders that were going to, to help us. Uh, we were trying to pick one and they all had their own idea of what material would was in process. was the best and they were all different. And, uh, so we were having to try to, to home in on what we, you know, thought would, would work out and, uh, the best. And I said, you know what, we do the skiff project. We can build skiffs any way we want because it uh, you know, we don't have, hundreds of thousands of dollars in materials in a hull. Right. uh you know the skiff we can we can handle that and uh so uh we put that first skiff together and uh you know spent a a year working on a prototype right uh we built a, a a temporary mold which nobody's ever done to my knowledge for a prototype build and uh they just build it off the jig and hope for the best so we wanted to know what that boat would sound and feel like, so you need a you need a mold for that, and uh, put that boat together, tested the hell out of it, made a lot of changes, learned a lot, and then
0: started pr- producing boats and hit a home so. run yeah well congratulations so. we're glad to be part of it alright well, thanks guys All right. I, know, I wish yeah, we thanks. could have talked more
1: about it yeah, yeah. I'm fascinated uh, in that stuff but yeah thank thanks you thanks so much George for yeah, coming on yeah well beautiful I, a,
2: I, unfortunately you didn't get to, to talk about the Nicaragua well, story well, we but could, maybe we, we'll, <laughs> we'll
1: have you on <laughs> maybe again another we'll time yeah yeah <laughs> no so. we'd love to have you on again because yeah. you got a massive story you can't cover in one podcast yeah
2: Because um, then I you know then I went on to the stalker and then you know I did that book for 13 years they caught uh, over 8,000 billfish Holy with, with shit. those guys. Well, we got to do another All point. right, guys, so, stay so, tuned. All so,
1: right, buddy, stay tuned. So, so, <laughs> Thanks again, George. All right, thank all you, right, guys. Man. See ya.
0: Working with George and Chittam Skiffs, we've had a chance to look into the future of their cutting-edge 21-foot tournament boat that has many guides standing in line to get one. We'll be talking soon with Dustin Huff to hear about his incredible work with Chittam refining it, and providing a more comfortable and safer ride at 80 miles an hour. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you soon.